our study through Acts even over spring break <clears throat> so that we can finish on time. <laughs> and for any who aren't here and do care to hear it later, they can listen to it on our podcast, which I commend to you and remind you of. All of our Sunday morning lessons and Wednesday night lessons are on the Lakeview College Ministry podcast. Uh, just to remind you where we were last week. So last week we covered two chapters, chapters 21 and 22, where Paul was making his way to Jerusalem and then arriving in Jerusalem just as the Spirit had been testifying that he would go. Uh, when, he, when he spoke to the Ephesian elders in chapter 20, he told them <clears throat> that the Spirit testified to him, had been testifying to him. He was constrained by the Spirit not only to go, but that when he got there, uh, imprisonment and afflictions would be awaiting him there. And, and we see that, that come to pass in chapter 23 today. Um, what we saw in the last two chapters were obstacles that he faced on the way there. So, for example, from believers on the way, he, he, he faced the obstacle of well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ urging him not to go to Jerusalem when the Spirit had clearly been telling him to go. And in fact, the Spirit had been also telling them that Paul, what would happen to Paul when he got there. They just interpreted that as, you don't need to go. And so Paul was trying to fulfill the will of the Lord, making his way to Jerusalem as he knew the Lord was directing him. And on the way, he had well-meaning brothers and sisters saying, don't go, don't go. Had to have been hard. He had counsel that he received <clears throat> in chapter 21 that, when he got there, that in the short run prevented him from doing what he would normally do when he would go to the city. He would go into a synagogue and preach the gospel there to the Jews. Well, here in Jerusalem, normally you would assume he would have gone into the temple and openly proclaimed Christ there. But the counsel that he received from James prevented him from doing that. Um, he instead said, you remember he said, you know, there are, there's four guys here that have taken a Nazarite vow. You know, why don't you... Cause so, Rumors are going around that you speak against the law, and, and um, why, don't, why don't you, i got an idea, why don't you take the Nazarite vow with them, and you actually go to the temple and do your, your duties uh, like they are, according to the law, Numbers chapter 6, pay their expenses, you know. That's the counsel that, that James gave to Paul when he got there. That's what prevented him from just openly preaching the gospel when he got there, because he was fulfilling this Nazarite vow. As it turns out, God is going to use that for good. We'll see in chapter 23 that that going to use that to Paul's advantage, that Nazarite vow, uh, as he stands trial. You may remember from last chapter, just to situate us where we are in chapter 23, that <clears throat> some Jews saw Paul there in the temple. They didn't like him, so they stirred up a riot. And, uh, and, and they were literally dragging him out of the temple, beating him, would have beaten him to death, but the Lord rescued Paul. Uh, soldiers came and rescued Paul from uh, the crowd, got Paul out of there even as he was being beaten. And recall that as the soldiers were carrying him away, Paul asked permission to speak to the crowd who was just beating him to death. <laughs> and uh, he was able to begin sharing his testimony of conversion with them uh, until they shouted him down and said he didn't deserve to live. Well, that brings us to, to where we are today, where we pick up today. We're actually going to start today at the end of chapter 22 uh, and, and, and through chapter 23. Here, Paul is still in Jerusalem. He is still being put under arrest and protection in Roman military barracks. 
uh, there in, 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 in Jerusalem. So if you found that neighborhood of Acts in your Bible, uh, we need to read our passage together. I'll begin reading uh, in chapter 22, verse 24, and read through the end of chapter 23. <clears throat> the tribune ordered, uh, ordered him to be brought into the barracks. This is just after they've rescued him from the, the mob. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this, why they were. And when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it law for you to, for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? He said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was afraid, for he, did, he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, <clears throat> and some of the scribes and Pharisees, this Pharisees party, uh, stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called 
me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready, 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. By the way, judging from historical records, that's about half of the soldiers that were stationed in Jerusalem. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Notice how he's spinning this thing in his favor. He didn't learn he was a Roman citizen until much later. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea, they delivered their letter to the governor. They presented Paul uh, also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. We confess our faith that it is that, that it is, it is breathed out by, by you. And so, uh, and, and so therefore, it, it is all those things to us. We ask your help as we, as we study it today. Lord, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand what's here. Give us hearts to embrace and love what we come to know. And give us wills to obey whatever it calls us to do. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, some of this chapter we looked at last week um, a little bit, but we'll take another look at it today. Um, but as is often the case, I don't really know why this is. In these chapters, there's like three different scenes. That's, I don't know why, but it is. And so the three scenes, that we, the clear scenes that we have in this chapter are uh, the almost flogging that takes place uh, at the end of chapter 22, as well as the trial. So Paul's basically being prosecuted by by the Romans first almost flogging and then the Jews so we'll we'll see that uh, from 22 24 through 23 11 that's the prosecution it's the first string of trials that Paul's going to go through one after another almost to the end of the book uh, so the prosecution but then when the trial ends the scene turns to this group of more than 40 zealots who take an oath neither to eat nor drink until they have killed Paul and they're doing all this under the, 
the, the, the, the approval of the Sanhedrin. So we see the plot to kill Paul that they try to hatch to do with Paul what they were trying to do when they first dragged him out of the temple and began to beat him in the last chapter. That's just verses 12 to 15. But the bulk of the latter half of the chapter shows in so many ways the provision that the Lord makes uh, to, to protect Paul uh, despite these, these plots uh, and threats. So that's where we're headed. Let's start at the beginning and think first about the prosecution that, that Paul faced, first under the Romans and then the Jews again. It's easy. I, we started reading at the end of chapter 22, at least to me. It, it's easy to read these verses about what was happening to Paul at the hands of the Romans and then later the Jews. So much happened to Paul in Paul's life that it, it, some of the things, that it almost becomes white noise. You forget how serious this had to have been in his life. It's easy to, to just, uh, h- how did it feel like for Paul to go through these things? I mean, did, on, the, on the flip side, Paul did live through these things mainly without a scratch. Um, but but it, to him, it must have felt like it was by the skin of his teeth that he got away. Think about what happened. The soldiers rescue him. He must have thought, the church in Rome is praying for me. We looked at that last week. Remember Romans chapter 15? He asked them to be praying for him when he goes into Judea and Jerusalem. And here I am. He's being beaten. God help me. And then, I mean, out of the blue, Roman soldiers come not just walking but running. And they, they take him and they, they rescue him from being beaten to death. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for answering their prayers. Thank you for rescuing me. But as soon as, they, as soon as he feels like he's in safety, they say something that had to chill him to his bones. Because they basically say, now that they have him in, well, they don't basically, they say in, in verse 24, now that he's in safety in the barracks, saying he should be examined by flogging. Right? To find out, why they were shouting against him like this. I mean, if you were Paul, you would almost rather be back out there being beaten by the men than be taken into safety only to be flogged. I, you, 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 you may know a little bit about flogging. I'm not going to get in very, total gruesome detail. You may know a little bit about flogging because Jesus was flogged on the way to his death. The mere thought of it had to be chilling to Paul. I mean, even if he had already been through so many different hardships, he, he had almost been stoned to death in Lystra. They thought he was dead. You would think, I've been through all these things, maybe, maybe thing, you start to get used. No, you don't ever get used to things. In fact, having been stoned almost to death in Lystra almost made the thought of being flogged here in Jerusalem even worse. You know the intense pain that comes with it. And he knew that the Romans were particularly ruthless at it. Flogging was done with a, with a whip a, called a cat of nine tails. So it was a, it was a, a either leather, leather or a rope thick handle with nine strips, either of rope or of leather, with knots tied at the end. And in Roman times, in, tied into those knots on the end were pieces of bone, sharp bone or metal or rock, so that when they, and, and the, 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 the victim was tied around a big post with his back completely exposed. And when they would whip, it wouldn't just lash them, it would take flesh with it, right? And to hear the words, we didn't need to know if you're telling the truth. We didn't know why they're yelling at you. We're going to flog you and find out. Had to have been chilling. 
What if it were true that there was no good reason that they were flogging, that they were yelling at him? What if, what if it were true, that, and that is exactly what is the case, what if, it, what if it turns out that they're shouting at him and beating him for a complete misunderstanding? You need to be flogged to find that out. The way that God you ended up using James's advice, remember back in chapter 21 when he said, when he first arrived in Jerusalem and said, hey, I got an idea. There's a rumor going out about, around about you that you don't, you don't, you speak evil against the law and everything. I got an idea. Why don't you go to Jerusalem, according, go to the temple, according to the law, take this vow. You and pay the expenses of the other men. The way that God used that for Paul's good a little bit later was that it really was true that Paul was doing nothing, nothing to cause trouble. I mean, he, he, was, he was not doing anything to cause trouble. He was there taking a vow, paying for four others to take a vow according to the law. He wasn't doing anything against the law. He was actually doing something in obedience to the law. So there really was nothing to the accusations that they were shouting at Paul, and yet here he was strapped to a post with his, his back exposed, about to be flogged. He had to be thinking, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? I would be thinking that, and you would. And it came to him, something he had used before, and it helped. He's a Roman citizen. He's a Roman citizen. He, 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 had, he, he may remember he had said this back in Philippi. Flip back over to chapter 16, uh, remember, and remember he had uh, been thrown into prison in Philippi for no good reason, right? Again, Somebody else stirred up a riot, and Paul was thrown in prison for it. And in uh, Philippi, look down in verse 35. The next day, after, after he had spent the night in prison, when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, uh, saying, the magistrates have sent, have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly no let them come themselves and take us out so Paul knew that his Roman citizenship in certain cases could be an advantage to him and so here again go back to 23 uh, he says in verse 25 or excuse me chapter 22 verse 25 when they had stretched him out for the whips Paul said to the centurion who was standing by is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Well, you think the answer to that question is? Absolutely not. So they stopped, and they stopped fast. He asked him point blank in verse 27, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? To which he said, yes. And they say, basically they say, how? Because a Roman citizenship in a lot of cases wasn't easy to come by. The centur I mean, this is a Roman soldier said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. I mean, for all he knew, Paul, remember when they first arrested Paul, they thought he was some Egyptian guy. They were like, well, didn't even know who he was. So looking at Paul, they probably thought he was a slave or, a, or some, uh, somebody of, of a low standing. And he said, Paul says, no, I didn't, I didn't buy my citizenship. I was actually born a citizen, which was an especially prestigious position because in, in, in social standing and in social class in Roman day, he actually outranked in social class the men who were about to whip him, right? Who merely bought their citizenship. So they let him go immediately. And it actually says uh, in verse 29, they, they withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid. He was afraid. Uh, 
he even said, what are you about to do? <laughs> because something like this could have finished their careers. If, if, it, if it was known that they whipped a Roman citizen who actually outranked them in social standing, a man who was not only a Roman citizen but was not condemned of any crime, they would have been finished, and the same and worse could have happened to them. So in an interesting uh, twist of, of fortune, <laughs> these, these soldiers went, went from being completely careless with Paul, let's just flog him to see why they're yelling at him, to, to taking great care of Paul for fear of their own lives. This is going to come up again a, a little later in the story, but in the meantime, Paul went back to his room safe and sound, and, but they still needed to know why the fuss was, was all going on. So instead of flogging, they said, let's call a trial. Let's bring his accusers. We'll go down to the council. Let them question him face to face. We'll send a tribune down there uh, to look on and make sure everything stays in order. So Paul speaks first. The next day, he's standing before the Sanhedrin with a tribune looking on. And he speaks first. And as soon as he said, his first thing he says is, is uh, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. That's a great first line. I want to tell you why. Because, but by the way, as soon as he says that, the, the high priest orders him to be punched in the mouth, basically. <laughs> and he knew, he knew why. Uh, how can Paul say, we'll get back to the punch in the mouth in a minute. How can Paul say that he lived before God with a good conscience up to this very day? I think it's a wise, wise way to start. Uh, because Paul knew it was very likely that there were some in that crowd, some in the Sanhedrin, whom the Lord may call to faith in Christ. That's not completely unusual. It's very likely that Paul knew Nicodemus. Paul was a Pharisee, an older man at this point. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who met Jesus and, and came to faith in Christ. He may have, so he may have known personally Nicodemus, a Pharisee who had come to faith in Christ. Back in Corinth, he knew that it, he may, it may not have been a Pharisee, but the very ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, came to faith in Christ. Paul knew that there was a good chance that somebody in this crowd might come to faith in Christ. So he begins this way. I have lived my life in good conscience up to this very day. What's he doing? Well, for those being there who might believe, for Paul to start by saying he had lived in all good conscience before God up to this very day, it did one thing. First, it honored their position as Pharisees because they knew he used to be a Pharisee. They, they knew his family line, and they knew, no doubt, they knew the zeal with which he held that position and that he put, he put believers to death. When he said, even then, I was living before God with a good conscience, it honored them as Pharisees. But when he said, I, I still up to this very day I live in good conscience, that lent credence to what he was about to say. If the guy who used to put uh, Christians to death was now a Christian willing to be put to death for his faith, something real must have happened, right? Something real. And no doubt the high priest knew that because as soon as he said that, he orders him to strike him in the face. Paul, knowing that was contrary to the law, told him, that what he did was contrary to the law. In fact, he said it with much vehemence, you whitewashed wall. It was contrary to Leviticus 19.15. They told him, don't talk to the high priest like that, which Paul said, I didn't know he was the high priest. How did Paul not know he was the high priest? 
I don't know. Some may have wondered he had spent so many years in the Gentile world that he didn't, he may have known the name of the high priest, but didn't know what he looked like. He wasn't in Jerusalem to know. I mean, he didn't have Instagram to know who, what the high priest looked like. How do, you know, how do you know by face somebody if you've never there to see him? Could have been that way. It could have been also that Paul was being a little cheeky, you know. I didn't know you were the high priest, thinking Christ is our great high priest. Who knows? But here you can, you can, it's when this is happening that you can see Paul's wheels start turning. He hadn't gotten one sentence out of his mouth. I've lived in good conscience before God uh, uh, from all my life into this very day. One sentence out of his mouth, and he got punched in the face for it. Right? He already saw the writing on the wall that he wasn't about to get a fair trial. Right? This is a sham. So he had to be thinking, just like, just like he had earlier when his arms were tied around that post with the, with the Roman soldiers, how am I going to get out of this? That was last night. This is today. How am I going to get out of this? Because I get one sentence out of my mouth, and I'm getting punched in the face. How am I going to get out of this, this, uh, this trial? Well, he looked around the room. I don't know how he noticed. Maybe it was the way they dressed. I don't know. He saw half the room were Pharisees. Half the room were Sadducees, two different parties uh, of the ruling class among the Jews. The difference being the Sadducees only acknowledged the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and because of that, there were some things that aren't explicitly taught in those books uh, that are explicitly taught in later books that, that they just didn't believe because they're not explicitly taught in the first five books. So they didn't believe much about the, the afterlife and the resurrection, Right? They didn't believe in a lot of supernatural things, all things that the Pharisees believed in. So Paul saw his chance to throw the trial. He spoke up and said, I'm a, son of the, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a son of a Pharisee. And as he puts it in verse 4, it is with respect to the, re- hope and the, uh, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Of course, Paul was referring to the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but the Pharisees on one side of the room saw it as an opportunity to argue with Sadducees on the other side of the room. Because some believed in a resurrection and the other half didn't. So they started arguing with each other. And some even stood in verse 9 and said, we don't find anything wrong with this man. The Pharisees said that. So who knows if, if, if in this group there were some who were moved by his testimony, even later becoming Christians, who said, we don't find anything wrong with him. But nevertheless, the council became violent. The tribune took Paul out of there and back to the barracks where they kept him before he was hurt or killed. And then It tells us in verse 11 that the next night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. When I read through this account again of his trial and, and, and even the flogging at the end of the, or almost flogging at the end of chapter 22, two things were prominent in my mind. First was the, is what Jesus told his first disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Uh, remember he told them, you're going to be dragged before governors and kings. But when they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. What you're to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. The Lord was clearly doing this for Paul as well in these intense moments, about to be flogged, rigged trial for his life. 
How am I going to get out of this one? What am I going to say? And in that moment, the Lord gave him the perfect words. Oh, I'm a Roman citizen. Oh, I'm on trial for the resurrection. And they made it through unscathed and alive. That's the first thing. God was good. The Lord Jesus Christ was good on his promise. The other thing that jumps out to me, really I got from verse 11, is that the Lord speaks to him. Take courage. Uh, you're, you're not just going to testify about, about me here in Jerusalem. You're going you're to make it all the way to Rome. And he reassures him of his will and his plan. <laughs> Here's what I want to just say about that. The Lord didn't, the Lord wasn't constantly speaking to Paul, like at all times. He wasn't like walking in constant dialogue with the Lord. There were times where Paul didn't necessarily know the specific word from the Lord of what he wanted to do. But it seems that at moments of greatest need, the Lord gave him wisdom. The Lord gave him direction. So he does so here, but also just, just look back, and you can, see it in his, you can see it in his life. Like, think about uh, chapter 16 again, uh, when he was in Philippi, or, uh, or the, before they went to Philippi. Remember, they, it says, beginning in verse 6, that they were going through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. He had to be sitting there and go, Lord, where do you want us to go? Where do you want us to go? And that very night, he received a vision of a Macedonian man said, come preach to us, right? Or in chapter 18, when he's in Corinth, and he goes to, and reasons with the, with the synagogue, and they, they uh, many of them uh, rebuff him vehemently, he, may, he must have been thinking in, in, in Corinth, do I stay here for a while or do I move on to the next place? And the Lord comes to him in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent for I have many people in this city. Or in chapter 22, uh, verses 17 and 18, when, he, uh, when he, the Lord comes to him and, and he, he says in verse 17, when I... Returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. I'm not saying that when you, I'm not saying that when you uh, feel like you need wisdom and assurance from the Lord that he's going to cause you to fall into a trance and tell you exactly what he wants you to do. What I am saying is he's given you his perfectly sufficient word. And in that moment of greatest need, I need, I need to know what I should do. He will give you clarity through his word. His Holy Spirit will bring a, a, a passage to your mind that gives you clarity in that moment that you need it, just as he did for Paul. So the Lord assured him that he would make it to Rome to testify before Caesar, something he was already convinced that by the Spirit he would do in chapter 19. He'd already been told this way back at his conversion 20 years earlier in chapter 9. You're going to appear before kings. That's, that's not, uh, Acts 9.15. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So Paul knew that he would have this opportunity from the moment he believed. So the Lord had already shown himself faithful to Paul through all this ordeal and assured him that he would continue as, 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 uh, as he testified in the coming chapters before one king after another. But step back from this for just a minute. And as, we, as we're going to think about the Lord's faithfulness to Paul, 
and his provision for Paul, his protection of Paul. Um, step back from it and just remember and know this, that Paul is now a prisoner. Paul is now a prisoner, and he will remain a prisoner for the rest of this book, right? For the rest of his life, he's not going to be a free man. Prior to this, he was traveling all over the Gentile world. Now he can't leave the room. He's just chained to soldiers, and he's a prisoner for the rest of his life. At the same time, Paul is absolutely free in the will of God to testify before kings. It's amazing. And, 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 it, and it, so it happens through his captivity as a Roman prisoner that he would fulfill the will of the Lord to testify before kings. It's a counterintuitive fulfillment for sure. But know that in your own life. Walk by faith and not by sight. But as soon as we're confirmed again of the Lord's will for Paul to make it to Rome, we learn of a plot uh, to not let Paul leave Jerusalem alive. So let's look at that quickly. We talked a little bit about this last week. The Jewish leaders didn't like, as a whole, didn't like the way the trial turned out. So some zealots, uh, it says here there were more than 40 of them, made a vow not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. Uh, they made a plan to get the leaders of the Sanhedrin to go to the tribune and say, tell the tribune, hey, we want to ask Paul some more questions. So tribune would say, all right, I'll bring Paul down. And as they brought Paul down, they would ambush Paul and kill Paul. All I really want to say about this, because we talked a little bit about this, neither eat nor drink last week. Um, all I really want to say about this now is sometimes you read stuff like this and it's, I mean, it's interesting and all. It's like a movie. <laughs> and, but you go, and, it, and it's interesting as far as it goes to Paul's life, but you go, how do I, how do I identify with that? Because I'm fairly certain I don't have 40 zealots after me um, vowing not to eat or drink until they've killed me. Pretty sure I don't. Somebody let me know if I do, if you know. All I, want, all I want to impress upon you is this. No, we don't have an enemy like that after us, 40 zealots vowing neither to eat nor drink until we don't have an enemy like that. We have one much worse. We have an enemy much worse. We have an enemy in Satan who is capable of much more. Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but aren't able to touch the soul. Fear the one who is able to, to cast both soul and body into hell. Fear the one uh, who, who, who has greater power than an army of 40 zealots. And he desires much more against us than these 40 ever desired against Paul. Scripture tells us to beware of him. But walk in faith and faithful obedience to Christ. Resist him and he'll flee from you. But don't forget about him. Don't forget about him. And don't, don't be lulled to sleep because we don't have an enemy precisely in this way into thinking we have no enemy. Right? And we're completely safe. No, we have an enemy that never sleeps. Not to mention that while we may not have many after us physically to kill us as Christians like Paul did here, that is not to say there aren't multitudes all over the world that do have enemies just like this one. Have whole groups of people plotting and planning how they can kill as many Christians as they can kill. Right? So we need to remember, they would read this and resonate very much with it. 
We need to remember that the, the enemy we have, and also pray for the brothers and sisters all over the world who not only have the enemy we have, but have zealots after them in their lives. So we see the plot against him. But how do we see the provision that the Lord makes for Paul, Paul here? If, if the plan worked that they hatched against Paul, they'd be eating and drinking by lunchtime. But that was a big if, if you recall what we said last week about the church in Rome praying for him. And God answered that prayer through a series of events that worked in Paul's favor. First, Paul's nephew overheard of their plan. This is really all we're ever told about Paul's family, by the way. Apparently he had a sister who had a son. So there you go. Uh, and this was him. And apparently he was pretty young. Uh, noted, the Greek word that, that's used to describe this nephew is one that would be described of a, of a fairly young boy. And notice, notice, for example, also in verse 19, it says the tribune took him by the hand, <laughs> right, and, and go inside privately. I doubt he would do that to a grown man, but he might do it to a younger boy. Uh, of all the people that could overhear the plan, of all the people, right? it is more than coincidental that Paul's own nephew did. And as a younger boy, understood what they were saying and felt the gravity of it and felt like, I need to go tell Uncle Paul. Right? That's amazing. But notice also the gift that keeps on giving. When, Paul, when his nephew tells Uncle Paul the plot against him, Paul calls the centurion, right? Very likely, because there weren't that many of them stationed there in Jerusalem, very likely the one who was involved in the almost flogging, right? And the one who now knows of Paul's privileged citizen status. Paul calls the centurion over and tells him what to do. He says, Take this boy with you and listen to what he has to say. And the centurion obeys. He takes the boy without question, without delay, hears what the nephew has to say, and believes it with absolute intense seriousness. So much so that we see, thirdly, the Lord's favor in the lengths they went, the Romans did, to secure Paul's safe passage to Caesarea. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. Ain't nobody getting Paul. And they made sure to, that he got to Caesarea to stand before Felix, which we'll see more about next week. But the last bit of provision we'll see before the Lord makes, uh, in, in this chapter, makes in Paul's favor, is at the very end of the chapter, when, uh, really, actually the very, they write this letter to Felix to send with Paul, and, uh, it's the last verse of the chapter. When, Paul, when, when Felix hears this, and he reads this letter that was sent with Paul, he says in verse 35, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. Guys, one of the things that helps you understand things like this in your Bible is, is that the world then is not all that different than it is today like in some respects it's different but if you think hearings and court hearings today are involve a lot of red tape they did then too right and it was easy not just from not just from red tape 
but just from crooked people. We're going to learn more about Felix next week. Felix was not a good dude. He was not a good guy at all. It would, and it, it would be easy for him to not care one whit about Paul. Who is this guy? And to slough it off on the next guy or the next region, the next court over here. I don't want to deal with this, but immediately he says, I'll hear it. And I'll hear it as soon as your accusers get here. That's favor. Because transfer, if he had transferred trial, for example, to a court in Syria, don't have time to go in there, it could have been bad for Paul. But he says, I'll hear it. And I'll hear it as soon as your accusers show up. It's really quite remarkable. You wonder how long they waited before they ate and drank again. If this chapter teaches us anything, it is the kind sovereignty of God. Uh, Book of Proverbs says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And in this chapter, the, it is uh, it constantly pits the will of man against the will of God. And the will of God always comes to pass. Right? And the process that he made, uh, we saw, bringing his sovereign plan about, is his kind provision for Paul at every step. Right? He was, he was almost flogged. Almost flogged. Right? He was kind at every step. And we can trust him to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this precious word. And we ask that you would give us grace for the next few minutes to, to think through it around our tables. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Simple questions today. Uh, what does this chapter teach you about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? What, if anything, does it lead us to do? You've got about 12 minutes.